Well, welcome to Randall Church, everyone. My name is Pastor Milo. So glad you guys are here. So glad that you're watching online. It's good to have you here. We know uh, these are different seasons, different time. And so uh, for many of you who are watching at home, uh, I want you to try to feel connected to the people who are in this room. And so what we've done, uh, if you were watching there, if you were paying attention, I know it's kind of new information for you. Uh, but many of you got an email this morning in your email inbox uh, that gave you a digital version of our bulletin this morning. And so in that, there's a connection as well uh, to be able to follow along with the message. Uh, if you're not uh, one, a person who's normally gotten a bulletin from us, or excuse me, emails from us, uh, you can go to bulletin.randallchurch.org. And in that, you'll get that link. What it's going to do, it's going to take you to our Facebook page so that you can uh, interact with us. And so because we have many people in our congregation who are here in the room, and then we've got other people in our congregation who are watching at home, as much as we can, we're actually trying to have you interact with one another even in real time uh, for people who are watching at home and want to feel connected uh, with you here. So if they're asking uh, questions about how many people are in the room, you can fill that in and say, hey, here's how many people are in the room. Uh, how many uh, new haircuts came in this week? Uh, you can fill that in, however that looks. Uh, we're trying to just help make that uh, connection possible there. Along those same lines, uh, I'm going to try to interject a few things as we go this morning that almost may feel like Bible trivia type of things, uh, just as a way to kind of, again, connect with one another, uh, work across both of those platforms. It's a, it's a different world that we're living in right now, and so we're trying to do our best to kind of connect uh, these two worlds. We've got an analog uh, world in this room and then a digital world at home, and we're trying to uh, do our best to make those things connect across the board. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I uh, hope that you enjoyed yourself. Again, this is another one of those kind of weird times. Um, this weekend, I, I went out to, to some family friends uh, about an hour away from here out in the country. And so coming home last night, I don't know if you saw this, because once I got here to Williamsville, the village of Williamsville, it wasn't nearly as exciting as maybe a few miles outside of the city when you get out into the country people just firing some fireworks off everywhere you look. So... All the way home, coming up to 400, there was fireworks going off everywhere last night, 360 degrees around us. Kind of a neat environment, a little bit different uh, than I uh, experienced before. Uh, along those lines, uh, I want to share with you, I've, I've told many of you many times uh, that I served in the Marine Corps. I served in the Marine Band specifically, so a weekend like this was a very busy weekend for us. We'd have multiple concerts and parades and performances uh, that we would do on big holiday weekends like this. Uh, one of them specifically that I want to bring up to you today was in Aiken, South Carolina. It's a beautiful setting, a uh, big amphitheater, outdoor amphitheater, kind of a rolling hill down, this big uh, stage at the bottom that we would put on a concert there, uh, not usually on the 4th of July, because we had a lot of military uh, ceremonies to do on that day, but maybe the night before or the day after. And then we'd have this big uh, concert there uh, in this huge park, and people would fill out the whole park. And then around the front of the stage, there was a moat, like a water moat, a water thing that went around the whole front of the stage that had like fountains and stuff in it. It was gorgeous. It was amazing. Uh, but some of the time while I was in, I was actually included as part of the, um, the team of guys who would go in a day before and set up all of the sound equipment. And so we would set it all up. And part of this particular performance, while the fireworks were going off, uh, we would play the theme, uh, the overture of 1812. And, and, and so what we would do is we would go in all of these beautiful 200-year-old trees and we would put speakers up in the trees all around everybody. They would, it was the big surprise that our conductor wanted so that when we got to that moment while the fireworks are going off, when we're playing the music, when that bass drum would hit 
in the back of our concert band that there would be all of these thuds and thwaps and sounds to make you feel like uh, you were in the middle of it. And so we got to go a day early and set everything up. And um, oh, also I wanted to ask as a Facebook question of those of you in the room, do you know who wrote uh, our national anthem? What's his name? What's the backstory behind it? You can answer that while I continue telling my story. Okay, here we go. All right, so uh, we're going. We, we drive in a day early. We set up all the speakers. They're all set up in the trees, all of those type of things. And then so we decided we got the bright idea uh, because we were ready ahead of time. When the rest of the performance arrives, they have 30 minutes from the bus unloads to be performing uh, a warm-up and be ready for the concert in uniform and all of that type of thing because they're going to open the doors about 20 minutes after that. And so we decided, because we got set up ahead of time, that when the rest of our band came, we had gone to the dollar store, and we had inflatable rafts, and we had arm floaties, and we had goggles, and we were floating in that moat out there in front of uh, the stage when everybody else arrived. And I was thinking about that today, because, or this weekend, just because the absurdity of me being in the military, floating around in the lazy river on the 4th of July, in contrast to, in comparison to, uh, maybe what some of you even in this room experienced when it comes to the United States military. And so we have to be reminded when we drive down the 400, we see fireworks going off, that those things are beautiful and those things are exciting, but we have to be reminded, right, that freedom comes with a price. And, and me being able to be in that lazy river and enjoying that moment and just having a wonderful day there with some of our friends putting on a concert in the park, that that came at a great cost. We also need to remember this too because we're beginning today in Acts chapter 6 going into Acts chapter 7. And if you're familiar with this passage, we're going to be talking about Stephen the martyr today. And we need to be reminded that our salvation uh, has come at a cost. Not only Stephen's cost, but the cost of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Following that, Romans 5.8 says that God commends his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. Our salvation comes at a tremendous cost. And we need to be reminded of that often. We need to be thinking through that and processing through that in the context of where we're going to be going uh, with this message uh, today. In last week's message, we looked at uh, there were seven of the first disciples that were chosen, Hellenistic Jews that were going to be chosen to do the work of the gospel, that they were going to be helping with widows, particularly the Hellenistic widows that were being overlooked, but they were going to be continuing to do this work of the gospel. Uh, these men were to be available in spirit. They were being available in wisdom. They were to be available in faith, or some of your translations would say grace, to be available uh, to see the Holy Spirit's power work through them. Them. And you're going to see that demonstrated today in the life of Stephen. One of the other things that's one of those unique kind of COVID situations is our family at Christmas time, we got this device but didn't really use it until being home for many months uh, together, and that's an Alexa. So we can, at any time, anywhere in the house, you just start yelling stuff, and the thing starts yelling back at you. And so uh, in our house, there's always this debate between some of our older kids and the younger kids. Alexa, play Down by the Bay, and then Alexa, cancel, stop playing that song, and Alexa, do this, Alexa, do that, uh, Alexa, play songs by the Beatles. Who are the Beatles? Alexa, cancel. Like all of this stuff going on all the time in the middle of that, and somewhere along the way, we came across this song, and it's actually been a song that has been played in our house quite a bit over the last uh, few months that our family has kind of really enjoyed. 
And so the song is called, uh, You Can Bury the Workman. So that you can understand where this is coming from. Alexa, play, bury the workman, but the work will go on. deacon in Jerusalem and they dragged him out those city gates to try and quiet him and when Stephen preached those Pharisees you know they started throwing stones and before he died he raised his eyes and saw Jesus on the throne he said you can bury the workman but the work will go on yeah you can silence the voices you can't stop the song Cause when the Spirit's moving His will will be done Oh, you can bury the workmen But the work will go on You see, James was sent to heaven At the edge of Herod's sword And Peter, he was crucified By his beloved Lord Yeah, the Roman Colosseum But the work will go on. So we're going to use that this morning as just the title of the message. We're going to be kind of thinking through that lens here today. Uh, Stephen is there. He's in front 
of the court. He's in front of the Sanhedrin, and this is the story that he would tell. He is there, as, we, as you look at the end of chapter 6 going into chapter 7, uh, he is there and he's been accused of these things. He's been accused of blaspheming against God. He's been accused of blaspheming against Moses. He's been accused of blaspheming against the law. He is accused of blaspheming against the tabernacle. He's been accused of blaspheming against the temple. He's pretty much been accused of all the things you could be accused of, and he's being brought in front of the Sanhedrin, and you're going to see here these parallels in a very similar fashion, a similar way that Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin. You're going to see how that all kind of plays out there together. And so if he's being accused of all of these things, what would his response be? We need to be reminded as well, as we look at this passage, be reminded at how young uh, this man is. When you look at the gospel and the way that it spreads, don't forget that Jesus Christ, when he's in full ministry, is from age 30 to 33. When we look at this life here, we see that Stephen is a young man. When we get to the end of today's passage, you're going to be introduced to Saul. And what has Saul said? Saul is a young man with the coats laying at his feet. God is working through these young men and seeing something incredible happen in the face of old, wise, knowledgeable men in the way that God worked through them. So I told you we're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 7 this morning. But if you will, will you turn over just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 12? Because I find this is the same author. There's something really important I want you to pick up on here. Because as these young leaders, this young uh, Stephen is going up against the knowledgeable, uh, these guys that uh, are, know all of the scriptures, and he's about to share some things with them, he's in way, way, way over his head. But check out what Jesus says. This is Luke chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 11 and 12. When you are brought before the synagogue, this is Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will have to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Do you see that? That the Holy Spirit would give him not only the words to say, he would give him the perfect words to say, so that he would be able to deal with these religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, the same people who put Jesus on the cross. He was going to be addressing them in this moment. And he's going to be addressing them and using their very scriptures that they knew so well. Uh, they would know every single example that he is giving in detail. He's not teaching them anything they haven't heard before, but he's giving them a new revelation to understand what's going on behind it. So if the work will go on, because if you know this passage, things don't turn out so well for Stephen by the end of the passage, right? And, and as, you, as you look at this passage, what we can see is a success in the ministry. Personally, for Stephen, not really a success. But as we look into this, uh, we need to see there's a few points that he is going to make when he looks through the Old Testament scriptures, and he's going to make this point. Here's the first point he's going to say. When it talks about the work going on, it's not about a place. It's not about a place. When the high priest asked Stephen, verse 1 of chapter 7 says this, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? These charges that he had been blaspheming against God, against Moses, against the law, against the temple. He replied this, brothers, fathers, listen to me. Look at this. Circle this, underline it in your Bible. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He's making very clear. You're going to see this come up at the end. He's making very clear that he is building an argument on the God of glory. He's not blaspheming him. No, instead he is going to do something here that's going to bring him to life. He said to Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, leave your country, leave your people, and go to the land that I will show you. 
So he left the land of the Chaldeans, he settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land, and he points out to those who are listening, to where we are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that's not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. Jump down to verse 9. Then the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. They sold him in a slave into Egypt. The, the patriarchs, here's another just Bible trivia for you. If you want to interact with that Facebook page, if you're watching home on Facebook, how many of those patriarchs, how many of the brothers of Joseph can you name? There you go. That's all it was. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him, 10, and rescued him, uh, that's verse 10, and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and his palace. So if we say it's not about a place, first you see uh, he's with the Chaldeans. Now he's in, uh, that God is moving into Egypt. The famine struck all of Egypt, all Canaan, bring great suffering. Our ancestors couldn't find food. So now Jacob, he takes his family. He goes to Egypt. That's where our forefathers were there on their first visit. Jacob then went to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed at a tomb that Abraham had bought for the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. He is looking at the leaders in front of him who have accused him of, of disregarding Moses and disregarding uh, the patriarchs. And he is bringing up the point that it's not about a place. It's not about a place. That God was with them regardless of the place that they were in. So the first thing that we need to see is that work will go on and it's not about a place. The work will go on and it's not about a leader even. Continuing on, verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then there was a new king, a new pharaoh to whom Joseph meant nothing. He came to power in Egypt he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed their ancestors by forcing them to throw their newborn babies in so that they would die. Verse 20, at that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. Just a side note here. This is, this is the paraphrase that Stephen is giving. But if you go back to the Old Testament, which those first five books of the Pentateuch, we know that Moses was the one that penned that. Or we believe that Moses is the one that penned that. Don't you find it interesting that Moses seems to go out of his way to let us know how beautiful this baby Moses was? That he wanted everybody to know there was this gorgeous baby named Moses. I happen to be writing the story here. But Moses, this beautiful baby, was born. And he was no ordinary child. So Stephen just picks up on that and it just strokes Moses' ego. And Moses feels great for it. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, was powerful in speech and in action. And we get this story about how Moses then uh, fights for and delivers them from the Egyptians. And there's this Egyptian that he takes him outside and he kills him in defense of the Hebrews. And then he thinks that this means that then the next day that, that they're going to be excited about this, right? They want to follow him, they're deliverer. But what do we find? The next day Moses came on the two Israelites, verse 26, who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why would you try to hurt each other? But the man who's mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? It's not about a leader. He says, Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner, where he had two sons. 
And then Stephen talks us through how, how he meets God there in, in Midian. He meets him in the wilderness. Uh, is the, the burning bush experience that he has there. He says, take off your sandals for the place you're standing on is holy ground. This is the same Moses, verse 35 says, that had rejected, they had rejected with the words, who made you the ruler and the judge? But God sends him back in to be their ruler and their judge, to be their deliverer through God himself, through this angel who appears in the bush. So he sends him back into Egypt to be what? The ruler and the judge. But you see, it's not about the leader. Because God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people, is what Moses told the Israelites, verse 37, while he's there at Mount Sinai. But 39 is the tragedy. The ancestors refuse to obey him. Instead, they reject him, and in their hearts, they do what? They turn back to Egypt. They reject the leader once again. The book of the prophets says this. Would you bring me sacrifice and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness? The book of Israel, the people of Israel, you have taken up a tabernacle of Molech, the star of your God Rephim, the idols that you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. While he's standing there on trial, he makes a point first that it's not about a place, but second, he makes this point about it not being about a leader. Because this leader, Moses, that they say that he is blaspheming, he comes right back at him and says, I'm the blasphemer. Look at what you have done, people. Look how you have blasphemed Moses, how you would not allow him to be a ruler and a judge over you. And then God put him in place to be a ruler and a judge over you. And you still dismissed him and wanted to go back into Egypt. And how you still would not follow the prophets. You would not follow the leaders that God had set out before you. And you blasphemed them yourselves. He's not making a lot of friends here. But the work will go on. So it's not about a leader. Next, it's not about a temple. Verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained the land until the time of David. He enjoyed God's favor. He asked them he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built his house for him. Now we get a lot of detail in scripture about Solomon and this the job that he did on bringing the pieces together for the temple. We find out uh, where he went for wood. We find out where he went for stone. We find out where he went for all of these elements that are brought together for the temple. However, verse 48 says, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. And then he quotes a prophet. As the prophet says, 49, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? So you see what's going on here. Stephen is looking right into the eyes. So he's, he's in a courtroom case. It's like a courtroom drama that's being uh, lived out. I, I've not spent a lot of time in a courtroom. Usually, uh, anytime I've been there, I've done something wrong. I've, I remember when I was going into the military and I had to stand there and, and my recruiter came and saved the day because he wanted me to go to boot camp. Uh, he came and he stood next to me and made sure that my parking ticket became a parking ticket so that I could still go on to boot camp a week later. They made sure of that because someone was there fighting on behalf. There's nobody there with Stephen. There's nobody there with Stephen. He is looking into the Sanhedrin's eyes and he is pushing this right back at them because he wants to make sure that they understand through the Holy Spirit what God is actually up to and the misconceptions that they've been making all along. 
So it's not about a place, it's not about a leader, it's not about a temple. Well then what is it about? Here it is. It's not about a place, it's actually about a promise. Go back to verse 5. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God did what? He promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess this land, even though at that time Abram had no children. So he is saying it's not about a place. It's not actually the location that matters as much. It's this promise. That's the anchor that we hold on to. You see that those leaders were they're constantly going back to this, this specific place and wanted to make sure that that place was the most important thing that they would worship, and that's where they must worship. But that place moved because God moved with them. He had promised that he always would. So it's not about a place. It's all about a promise. And it's not about a leader. It's all about the Lord. The burning bush experience, take your sandals off, you are standing on holy ground, has nothing to do with Moses. Do you understand that? And Stephen is looking into the eyes of the judges that were sitting there and have the ability to, to, to let him go because he's done nothing wrong. And he makes them understand the fact that it's all about the Lord. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed when he got there, he got a closer look, and he hears what? The Lord. He hears him say, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and of Jacob. What does Moses do? He trembles with fear before the Lord. Religious leaders, Sanhedrin, it's not about a leader. It's all about the Lord. It's not about the temple. It's all about the throne. I just read this verse, but for Solomon built this house for him, However, the Most High does not live in the house made by human hands. But where does he live? Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and for mine, when he was resurrected into heaven, where does he resurrect to? Where, what are we told in Scripture? He resurrects to the right hand of the Father to sit on the throne. It's not about a temple. It's not about the place. We, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago that now as we see in the book of Acts the Holy Spirit is moving. As the Holy Spirit moves he comes to dwell where? In his temple, his people. And that his throne would be in heaven on high. He no longer needs the earthly temple. So you can bury the workmen but the work is going to go on. Because why? Because Stephen, as he makes this argument, as he pushes this back, right back in the face of the religious leaders of the day, as the Sanhedrin, the very same people in a very similar way who put Jesus on the cross, he stands before them in a very similar way. He is now going to bury himself. He's going to bury himself because he says this, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. Says as, as Hebrews, as Jews, you have used circumcision as this outward expression, this outward way to demonstrate that you are different from all the people around you, that you are God's chosen people. But instead, there's something that matter much deeper than that. Your hearts and your ears have problems. You are just like your ancestors. All through the Old Testament, we get these words, you stiff-necked people. God talks about uh, the people of Israel that way. Why do you resist the Holy Spirit? Was there ever a prophet in your ancestors who you did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And now you have betrayed and you have murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but not obeyed it. Do you remember just two chapters ago? 
the, 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 the leader there, Glamalel, uh, is telling them, listen, if this is of God, stay out of the way. If this is of man, it's going to burn out. It's going to phase out. At this point, we believe there's about 10,000 people in the city of Jerusalem who've accepted Christ. God is moving in a tremendous way. He is speaking through guys like Stephen with tremendous amount of power and using them in mighty ways. They are not listening at all to the instruction of Gamaliel. Like they should be getting out of the way, but instead they are getting in front of him and they are in the way of him. And because members of Sanhedrin heard this, they were what? They were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Where have you heard that term before, gnashing of teeth? Usually when we hear that in scripture, that gnashing of teeth has to do what is coming someday and that is in hell that we see the gnashing of teeth, this grinding of teeth, this pain of teeth. And in this, in this example, it's like they're getting practice for that day. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looks into heaven, and he sees what? The glory of God. Remember when we talked about that at the beginning of this section, that he talks about the God's glory being shown to all of them through Abraham? Now he looks into heaven himself. He sees the glory of God. Look, he says, I see heaven open, and I see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is a very interesting choice of words. He's saying he is standing at the right hand of God. And many of the commentaries I read this week, as you're looking at this, normally you do see Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of God. But it's almost as if this, this movement of, of Stephen, this, this sermon that Stephen is preaching, it calls Jesus to jump to his feet and applaud what Stephen is doing in these moments. On the right hand of God. And what are they going to do next? But they cover their ears. See, these are, these are old men, wise men. They are, they are guys who are university professors. They are the teachers of the law. They are the educators. And so they do what all wise old men do when they hear things that they don't like. They go like this. They act like two-year-olds. I don't like what you're saying. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. They start yelling at the top of their voices and they rush him. They drag him out of the city and they begin to stone him. Just as a matter of interactive question, again, for Facebook or for Harvard, why stone him? Why, was it just because they were angry and they wanted to do something or was there something behind that? I would say that there is. I don't have time to get into that this morning as to why they stone him there. And here's the other young man that we talked about. Meanwhile, the witnesses or those who are part of the, the, the stoning that's happening, they lay their coats at the feet of what? A young man named Saul. Saul is seeing all of these things with his eyes. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed this, and this should just start triggering memories in your ears. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he says. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like something you've heard before? Doesn't that reflect someone special? Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. He is reflecting the glory of God through his son Jesus Christ, even dying in a similar fashion to what Jesus did. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And verse 1 of chapter 8 goes this way. And Saul was there, approving of their killing him. And it's this great flash forward of what was going to happen, the way that God was going to move in Saul's life, and he's going to become the Apostle Paul, and we're going to be able to cover what, what God is going to do through the life of young Paul at this point, and the way that he is going to be used by God. But right now, he thinks that he can bury 
the workmen. He thinks that this is over. He thinks that he has put a stop, and he's been a part of putting a stop to this nonsense called Christianity. Let me go back to that story I was telling at the beginning. Aiken, South Carolina. I was in this beautiful setting, 4th of July. This big amphitheater all set out, all in front of us. We had the moat in front of us. I think I was there three different years, if I remember correctly. And while we were there, what I left out was I told you the story the first time, is that this is an old plantation. And so while we were there, one of my leaders, a saxophone player, he's one of our directors in the band, an African-American man. He's 20 years to my senior. He's about to retire. And one of the things that he does is he leads the band as he comes up and he warms us up and, 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 and walks us through all the steps of what we're going to do in this performance. And wouldn't you know it, one of the, uh, the ladies who had helped organize the event get us there, she looks him straight in the eye beforehand. And this is the middle of the environment, right, that we're living in right now, the reality of the situation we're in. And she says, what are you doing here? I'm standing a foot away from him and watch my senior, he's a, he's a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps, Gunnery Sergeant Gregory Whitaker. I would have never called him Gregory in any situation ever. Uh, even saying it now, I, I hope he doesn't know where I live. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But he's retired. Gunny Wit is what we called him. And what he was about to do, and I watched him do with such professionalism, as part of our concert that night and many of the nights that we would perform these, uh, these ceremonies, these concerts, as he was going to be singing this song, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And for him, this song meant so much to him because this song is written during the Civil War. At least these words are penned to the tune during the Civil War. During the Civil War, this was a tune that was being used by both sides and had some pretty horrific lyrics, but eventually they land on these lyrics that don't you know, include like stringing Jefferson Davis up or uh, some of some really kind of rough lyrics that went with this, that this was the song that has to do with the freeing of the slaves. Oftentimes we have it in our hymnals today. Oftentimes you'll, you'll find this, but it's not really a hymn except for this very first line that comes from the passage that we're in today. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning with his terrible sword. His what? His truth is marching on. And so I watch Gunnery Sergeant Whitaker, Gregory Whitaker, sing this song that night and in consecutive years after taking some really sny comments that were not appropriate walk onto the stage and sing this song. And you knew that this song meant something spectacular to him because of the freedom he had to sing this song. That one day, see what, the, what he was standing on, yes, this was, this was a, an anthem for the, for the Union soldiers as they came and they were going to free the slaves. But this was also the anthem of the gospel ringing out. That God's truth would be marching on. That his terrible swift sword would be coming to eradicate that which was broken. And when you look at this passage, when you see Stephen has given his life for the sake of the gospel, why would he do that? Because truth would continue to march on even after he was long and dead because he believes that God is working. So you can bury the workmen. You can bury Stephen. We can get to the end of chapter 7 and Stephen's life is over, but the book of Acts is not over. God is going to move. And 2,000 years later, God continues to move. 
So let me ask you this. How can his truth march on in you today? Because it holds us, it tells us in Luke chapter 12 that you're not going to have all the right words to say. You're not going to be able to predetermine how to respond to the questions, the concerns that come at you. But the Holy Spirit, if he gives you a speech, anything like what he gives Stephen here, you're going to watch the power of God work in you and through you. His truth will march.